This is Cabernet and True Crime, hosted by Jana Nagel. Guess who figured out how to do an intro? (laughs) I am so just unbelievably proud of myself today. It's been a good day. Um, so, hey pals, there's some exciting new stuff coming, and if you're new here, just like the intro, I'm Jana, your host, and welcome to the first episode I've ever done an intro on. <laughs> um, I'm assuming you're here because of the Instagram page, but if not, be sure to check out Chab- Cabernet, Cabernet and True Crime on Insta uh, for a lot more content. I post something every single day, and it varies from weird crimes to trivia to well-known serial killers to the obscure. It's a little bit of everything. I get bored, so stuff changes. <laughs> um, also, feel free to check out the Patreon page. I don't, you know, it is what it is. Um, everything's nice and organized there. That's the only reason why I even promote it. Um, if you want to be a patron, cool. There's extra episodes and perks to doing that. But if not, um, it's still just a good place to find everything. If you don't want to go to uh, com, which also has everything. Also moderately organized and moderately up to date. Your choice. Um... So today we're going to talk about, yeah, we're just going to get right into it today. Um, we're going to talk about the serial killer, Timothy Wilson Spencer, better known as the Southside Strangler. So Timothy Wilson Spencer was born on March 17th, 1962, or St. Patrick's Day. Um, I had a very, very difficult time coming up with anything about his childhood, um, the only thing I was actually able to find was in his court documents, and it was actually during one of his appeals, I think, or maybe a trial. Um, his argument was that he was more or less mentally unstable due to a troubled childhood, and the only thing I could even get from his childhood was that he said he was emotionally damaged from being told his father was dead, although he actually wasn't, and uh, Spencer admitted to using PCP and suffering from, like, he, these are his words, not mine, quote, suffering from organic brain damage. So, I mean, because there's not much to go on as to why he was the way he was, we're just going to have to move into the next section, which would be the crimes. So, um, with that being said, on September 19th, 1987, Debbie Dudley Davis, uh, who's 35, was found murdered in her first floor apartment. She was an account executive who lived on her own, and she had been murdered either late the night before or early in the or in the early morning hours of the on the nineteenth. So, um, Virginia police found her naked body lying on the bed. She had been strangled by a sock tied tightly around her neck that had been twisted with part of a vacuum cleaner hose, which had been twisted two or three times. The pressure on her neck was so great that it had cut her neck muscles, larynx, and voice box, and had also caused a hemorrhage in one of her eyes. Her nose and mouth were bruised, and her hands were bound by shoestrings, which were attached to the device around her neck. There were semen stains on her bedding. Two weeks and only about a half mile away from the Davis murder, um, on October 3rd, 1987, Dr. Susan Hellams, a resident of neurosurgery at the Medical College of Virginia, was found murdered. Her husband had come home and found her body in their closet. It appeared the attacker gained access to the home by cutting a large portion of a second-story bedroom screen. So I guess, from what I read, there was like a 12-foot-tall or maybe 6-foot-tall security fence. I have no proportion of height. Um, 
and he was able to kind of climb that fence onto a second story balcony um, in which he cut open the window to get into the home. Um, she had been strang. Oh, that was the last crime. Oops. Um, I get on these tangents and I just kind of look around a whole bunch. And then when I look back to my screen, I cannot remember where I was to begin with. So I will apologize. That's why I get so marble mouth sometimes. <laughs> it's because it just kind of my, my, my like brain meanders while I'm doing this. And I'm like, oh, I haven't worn those shoes in a long time. I wonder when, but I'm still talking the whole time I'm doing it. And if you didn't know already, I record in my closet of my bedroom, <laughs> which is so weird. But it's the only place in the house that has like decent acoustics. Um, we have vaulted ceilings. This is sidebar, unplanned sidebar nation. Um, we have vaulted ceilings and hardwood floors, and I have a dog with really long toenails. And so it's nearly impossible to do anything out there because everything is so much loud. So luckily, I own enough clothing, and this is carpeted, so that... I mean, the acoustics aren't, like, obviously great, but they're the best I can do for right now, so enjoy. But so, yeah, sometimes if I zone out and go to... I jump around sometimes, and I have to re-record bits because I forget what I'm doing halfway through this podcast. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I'm not even drinking today. I don't know what the problem is. Okay, let's let's go back to business. So Dr. Susan Helms, she was murdered on either October 2nd or... Tw- October 3rd, 1987. Okay, we covered that. Um, So she had either been killed the night before she was found or in the wee morning hours of October 3rd, which is my mother's birthday. So Helen's body was nude above the waist. Her skirt and slip had been pulled up. Her underwear were removed. She was wearing red socks and one red shoe still remained on her left foot. She had two ligatures around her neck, one made from a, a red belt and the other one from a blue cloth belt. Her hands were bound behind her back with an electrical extension cord and another blue belt. There was also a belt around her left calf. It was determined that the cause of death was ligature strangulation caused by the belts around her neck. She had a fractured nose, blunt force injury to the lower lip, bruises and scrapes, and an injury consistent with a shoe stepping on her back right leg. Semen was found on her skirt and slip. Well, seminal fluid, I guess is the correct term. Um, So obviously that crime has a lot of similarities to the Davis murder. And they're very close together. Um, So on the afternoon of November 23rd, 1987, Diane Cho's body was found face down on the bed, partially covered by a sheet. She was only 15 years old and a high school student. And she's also the Southside Strangler's youngest victim. Her hands had been tied securely behind her back with a length of rope. Another rope was tied tightly around her neck with a slip knot, which came over her back and was tied to bind her hands. She was nude and her mouth was covered with duct tape, and an infinity sign, or a figure eight, um, had been painted on her left hip in fingernail polish. Her cause of death was ligature strangulation. Um, Seminal fluid was found on the victim as well, um, but there were also three separate stains found on the bedding. Uh, Blood stains were found on the bedding, as well as a single negroid hair. Mr. and Mrs. Cho, her parents, stated that no African American had ever been inside the apartment. Susan Tucker, who is 44, was found murdered in her Arlington, Virginia condo on December 1st, 1987. December 1st? That's not a date. December 1st. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. Due to the amount of decomposition present um, when she had been found, it was determined that she had been murdered on or near November 27th, so about four days earlier. 
She was found laying across her bed, nude and partially covered by a sleeping bag. A rope had been cut from Venetian blinds and was used around her arms and neck. Her purse had been dumped and the premises was ransacked. Um, semen stains were found on the sheets. As a side note, and just to mention, there were two other bodies um, found on January 16th in about the same area. Um, however, they were not linked to Timothy Spencer. One murder was determined to be the work of a copycat killer, and the other death was ruled as a suicide. So those two are some, I've seen both, where they're attributed to Timothy Spencer, and, uh, sometimes not. I did a little back-checking, and if you find the court documents for that, it was definitely not Timothy Spencer. There were other people, there was another man convicted for that, and obviously the other one was a suicide. So... Those aren't, no, they're not to him. Um, so with the discovery of these four bodies, police and investigators were figuring out that they had a serial killer, obviously. So these crimes happened in such quick succession and had several things in common, including one, all victims were killed by ligature strangulation. Two, all victims had been subjected to forcible rape and sodomy. Three, all victims were overcome quickly with no opportunity to struggle or call for help. None showed defensive injuries. The evidence was consistent with victims being attacked while asleep, and there was no evidence of injury by a weapon. Four, access to the home in all cases was gained through a window. Five, all victims were similar in skin tone and build. Six, all victims were found strangled by a neck ligature with the hands tied. In three out of four cases, the neck binding was connected to the binding on the hands. Seven, all victims were found in their bedrooms. Eight, the murderer made an effort to hide his partially or hide or partially cover each body before leaving. And nine, each of the killings occurred on a weekend, and in all four murders there were unusually large amounts of seminal fluid found outside the body of each victim. So although they had been raped, there was still a large, large amount of just not in or around the body. It was on top of the sheets and surrounding the body. Um, there was also an interesting similarity that a couple, um, so these cases were kind of the, uh, what's that word? The escalation. Um, before these, there had been a rash of break-ins, burglar burglaries, and rapes in the neighborhood, um, that was currently in the throes of a serial killer. And one of those things that connects that to the current, you know, situation at hand is the Venetian blind cord. So, two incidents stand out. Um, it should be noted that the incidents that are about to be noted were by no means isolated events. These happened a couple times to many different people. Um, in the first, someone had entered a woman's house through a basement window when no one was home. When the woman finally returned, she found the burglar had left pornographic magazines and a length of Venetian blind cord on her bed. Horrifically, this probably means he was waiting for her to come home and got bored. Thank goodness. Could you imagine how terrifying that would be? I'd, I would never go home again. <laughs> I'd pack up my dog and be like, we're out. Never mind. Um, so at this, you know, whole Venetian blind pornographic sex sexual thing, police began re-interviewing rape victims from the same area to see if they could come up with any more leads. Um, so in one case, a woman was awakened early in the morning by a black man wearing a ski mask and armed with a knife. He threatened her, taunted her, and made her drink Southern Comfort to make it feel more like a date. I think they, they estimated that making her drink was more, like, romantic, which it's not. Also, it's so coast, so that's, like, disgusting, but 
to each their own, I suppose. Um, he tied her up for three hours, raped and tortured her, and he produced a length of rope that could have been used to kill her, and a neighbor heard her screaming and came back to check it out, and the attacker left quickly. So, out of all this, um, apparently it pointed to Timothy Spencer, who was a small-time convicted burglar and no stranger to police. So, Timothy Spencer went on trial in Arlington on May, or... May. I'm looking at the, I'm literally looking at the word. It says July and May comes out of my mouth. Why? So he, (laughs) I'm sorry. So Timothy Spencer went to trial in Arlington on July 11th, 1988 for the rape, burglary, and murder of Susan Tucker. He was convicted and sentenced to death based on the DNA evidence linking him to the Tucker crime scene, the first case in Virginia to have DNA successfully used to prove the identity of the person who committed the crime. After his conviction, Spencer went on trial again in Richmond for the rape, burglary, and murder of Debbie Davis. DNA from semen and hairs collected at the murder scene were consistent with Spencer. The odds of the DNA being somebody else's were 1 in 705 million. He was convicted of this crime on September 22, 1988. He went on trial for the third time on January 17, 1989 for the rape, burglary, and murder of Susan Hellams. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Conviction was also based on DNA evidence found at the crime scene. So this was the first time in Virginia history that someone was convicted of capital murder based on DNA evidence, which is a huge win. And it's crazy that it was so recently. I mean, I was born in 1991, so this was only a couple, like, two years before I was born this, you know, was happening. So when you think of, like, DNA testing, I mean, that means it's only about 30, about 30 years old that we've been using, at least in Virginia, DNA evidence, which you'd think it'd be a lot older than that, I guess. My perspective may be skewed, but I feel like it's older than that. Obviously, it's not. Um, So, U.S. Attorney Helen... F. Fahey, who was Arlington's chief prosecutor for Spencer's conviction, said that, quote, it was a landmark case because prior to this, none of us really knew much about DNA and didn't know if a jury would be able to understand it sufficiently enough to convict someone of something as serious as capital murder. Well, Helen Fahey, you banked on the right thing because it was clearly enough to convince a jury. So after these three convictions, the DNA was compared to samples of other crime scenes in open and closed cases. So this is the fun part about the story because something really good happens from all this really terrible stuff. So in January of 1984, this is not the good part. This is still a little more bad part, and then we're going to get to the good part. But just clarify that I don't think this part's good. So in January of 1984, Carolyn Ham, sometimes referred to as Carol, was found raped, tied up, and hanged in the indoor entry to her garage. She had been found nude and face down, and she had been strangled with a piece of cord that had been cut from you guessed it, uh, her Venetian blinds. She lived alone in what she thought was a peaceful neighborhood. For this crime, however, David Vasquez had been arrested. He was a borderline mentally handicapped individual. He couldn't provide an alibi and had been seen by the scene of the crime by two witnesses. Forensic scientists were also able to determine that male pubic hairs that were found at the scene were, quote, consistent with those of Vasquez. Because there's not adequate data on the frequency of, you know, human hair, um, an analysis assertion that the hairs are consistent is prejudicial and lacks value, which is basically saying 
you shouldn't be using fiber evidence as a way to convict somebody, you know, and that's the case now. If you didn't know, you can't use, at least in most states I'm aware of, you can't use fiber evidence to convict somebody. It's a lot like a polygraph where I think you can use it to strengthen your argument, but people cannot be convicted based off of fiber evidence anymore, even hair, unless they're using it for like DNA. You can't just look at a hair under a microscope and be like, that's the same person for sure. Um, because there are a lot of times where people are convicted where it really wasn't them. They were convicted on fiber evidence. So that's kind of what happened with David Vasquez. But also he confessed to the crime in, quote, a dream statement or a false confession. So there has been uh, the documentary, The Innocent Man, I think, on Netflix, um, kind of covers the same thing of how some people can be coerced into, you know, either falsely remembering things or, you know, being told they dreamt something or they can be, you know, tricked into remembering things. That's really not the case. Because as you see in a second, obviously David did not kill her, but he was convinced that he did. So, um, after Spencer was convicted and all that, um, three separate labs tested the DNA evidence against Vasquez and Spencer, and thanks to this, were able to determine that Timothy Spencer was the real killer of Carol Ham. So, David served four years for a crime he didn't commit and was given an unconditional pardon on January 1st, 1989. He was the first American uh, exonerated based on contradictory DNA evidence. Um, so, unfortunately, Spencer was never convicted of the Carol Ham murder, but I'm happy the testing was at least enough to free an innocent man. Uh, Timothy Spencer was also never convicted of the case of Diane Cho, as the evidence was not strong enough there either. So the explanation for the time period between the killings um, was due to a prison term Spencer did for burglary. So Carol Ham was murdered in 1984, and the other murders started in 1987. He was in jail. And then um, he was put into a halfway house in Richmond. So all the killings in Richmond occurred during his 90-day stay there after his release. So this explains the change of cities and the time difference between the murders of all of them. So now we get to go to my favorite, personal, personal favorite part of this uh, case. And it's all the appeals. Um... These documents are available online, and I tried to summarize them to the best of my ability, uh, but there are parts that are just, I mean, they're good. And the clapbacks that the Commonwealth of Virginia gives back to, this is just, okay, we're just going to get into it because I have a lot of, I'm a scientist and I love this, because, dude, you'll see in a second, dude, you were convicted of there was one in 705 million chance that you did this crime, but he, he just, he fights it tooth and nail till the end. So, um, so of course, Timothy Spencer, now facing the death penalty, appealed all three of his convictions, and this is my favorite part. So on October 28th, 1992, the appeal was started for the conviction of the, um, in the Debbie Davis murder. Spencer appealed stating several things, but the big three are, one, the DNA case is unreliable. Two, the court should not have admitted the DNA evidence. And three, and this part doesn't make any sense at all, the future, quote, dangerousness aggravating factor in Virginia's capital sentencing scheme is unconstitutionally vague. 
He also talked some mumbo-jumbo about a woman being removed from the jury for, quote, racially motivated reasons, and that the defense counsel was denied the opportunity to defend against the DNA evidence because the court the court denied a request to pay for the expert testimony, so they were unable to prove issues with the DNA testing methods. The appeal was denied on September 16, 1993, stating that the testing had been done properly. On September 30th, 1993, so only a couple weeks later, the appeal for the conviction of the Susan Helms murder began. Um, on the same day, the Commonwealth sought and received an execution date of 8-25-1993, which was obviously pushed back due to appeals. Um, during the appeal, Spencer brought up some more mumbo-jumbo, such as, one, trial counsel was ineffective because they failed to secure a DNA expert for the defense, two, Spencer Spencer is, quote, actually innocent, end quote, of the crime for which he was sentenced to death and would not have been convicted if he had been able to challenge the DNA evidence and if the, quote, prejudicial injection of astronomical probability ratios, quote, into the trial had not occurred, and three, his trial counsel was ineffective because they did not conduct a voir dire I don't know how to say that correctly, and it is French, um, but it's basically a preliminary examination of a witness or juror by a judge or counsel on the issue of racial pre- prejudice. So I'm st- I think they're still talking about the one juror that had been removed. Um, and then the DNA analysis used as evidence in the case was subject to error and produced unreliable results, and the results should not have been admitted, and his trial counsel were ineffective in handling the evidence. Uh, to which... The Commonwealth of Virginia just had, like, the greatest reply ever, and it's actually a lot longer than this, and way better. Um, so they said they felt it necessary to point out that, although he felt his counsel was ineffective because they failed to get a DNA expert, Spencer was tried twice for capital murder in the same court with the same trial judge and defended by the same attorneys. The first trial tri- first trial started on 9 and he was found guilty of the murder of Debbie Davis. So he knew how this was going to go, that if he didn't get his shit together, he was going to get convicted of a second murder because he was being tried in the same place by the same people with the same defense, right? So um, the court felt it important to bring this case up because the state judge, who was confronted with very similar trials just four months apart, still allowed Spencer to file motions for both cases. So he had time and the means to do what he needed to do to get a friggin' DNA evidence guy. So, they go further to say, on June 15th, 1988, Spencer's attorney motioned for funds for experts, and there was a lot going on about how they said, quote, no expert they found would take the stand or was basically deemed insufficient. So they just couldn't find... Basically, they, they got the funds to get the expert, but they couldn't find an expert that would agree with their testing you know like they they couldn't pay off someone to say spencer was innocent you know because well, then you're asking someone to lie to lie in court and that's not good and highly frowned upon and also illegal so you know they couldn't pay somebody to lie because it's bad and so in the final part of this little section though they say however it is noted in the arlington trial that the defense attorneys had a blind dna dna test run by an independent lab so even though they couldn't get an expert to you know say that timothy spencer was innocent they still did the testing 
they got test results from a blind independent lab which corroborated with the commonwealth's evidence so they went on their own they're like oh we're fine we'll be able to prove that you know this dna evidence is wrong well they couldn't because the lab said that he was still it was still a match so jokes on you whatever so uh, basically that's those are the ones they answered they disregarded the rest of all of timothy spencer's topics and his appeal and it was denied on february 3rd 1994 and then on December 7th, yes, then my dates don't add up, but they're probably right. <laughs> Sounds so sure of myself. I triple checked when I wrote this down, so I'm assuming they're correct. On December 7th, Spencer appealed his conviction in the murder of Susan Tucker. His argument was the same as the last two times, and it was denied on March 1st, 1994, because of course it was. Um, listen, man, it's science, and... DNA doesn't lie, and I think it's funny that they paid to have his DNA tested in an independent lab, and it still came back with the same results. So, sorry, sidebar. My dad called in the middle of that, so if there's a weird cut there, it's because uh, my recording stopped, and I don't, I can't tell if it ended up being weird or not, so I guess we'll find out when I listen to this, when it gets posted, so sorry. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, man. It's DNA. They should try to make it a race thing, but DNA is not a race thing. DNA, oh, I mean, it, it fundamentally is, but, I mean, DNA doesn't care if you're black, white, Asian, Latina. It does not, it does not care. It is your DNA. It is your building that makes you who you are. And if you commit crimes and you leave your DNA places, then don't get mad when people figure out it was you. You dig? Um, so, on, yes, Timothy Spencer had exhausted his opportunities and was executed on April 27th, 1994 at the Greensville Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia, in the electric chair. He was pronounced dead at 11.13 p.m., and there was actually a crowd of about 100 people gathered around the prison. Half of them were death penalty opponents with a candlelight vigil, um, ooh, vigil, and the other half were local high school students who cheered for his death. He was 32 years old. <clears throat> um, because of the milestones in this case, though, Virginia opened up the first state DNA laboratory in the... Con in the I broke county? I, I, country? State? I'll have to verify that. Jana, you need to be... I, don't, I can't read my own handwriting, but that doesn't make any sense. Virginia opened up the first DNA laboratory in the county. doesn't make any sense at all. So I'm going to assume I meant country, and that also doesn't seem right. So that's my bad. I guess I'll research that and post it somewhere so you know what the answer is. Um, and apparently this case uh, inspired the 1990 novel Postmortem. And that's that. So if you have any suggestions for Cabernet and true crime or anything you'd like to hear, anything you'd like to see me cover, um, just message me. I mean, and you know, if you, if you don't already, you should follow the Cabernet and true crime Instagram. Something really cool is going to happen at a thousand followers. I hope. I mean, not like I'm waiting for it to happen. Like my Instagram turns like cool or something, but, uh, I'm kind of using that as like a mark for doing something kind of cool. Um, and we're kind of close, so I just want to see how that plays out. Um, yeah, so happy True Crime Tuesday. 
I will see you next week, right? Yeah. So happy True Crime Tuesday.